Hello and welcome to the IOTA Unum podcasts from the Latin Mass Society. In the company of some great friends of tradition from around the world, we will be drilling into some of the fundamental issues affecting us today in the church and the world. I'm going to present this in, in three parts, basically. To, to begin with, um, rather than sort of starting off straight with Newman's Mariology, um, to start with, look at the, the movement for the dogmatic definition of Mary's Mediatrix or Graces, which is the first half of the 20th century, really. Um, and then, after that background's in place, to track back to Newman's Mariology, um, looking at the letter to Pusey, um, and then consider... Newman's role in potential movement for a Marian dogma, Mary, Mediatrix or Graces, Co-Redemptrix, um, in the present period. So, for the key figure in moving forward theological and papal consideration of Mary as the Mediatrix or Graces was, of course, the Belgian Cardinal Désiré Mercier. And while Mercier was the... Um, focused on this Marian course from the, about 1915 to the last decade of his life. He was obviously also a significant figure in the Thomistic revival in philosophy. Henri Lefloc, the rector of the French seminary in Rome, would write in his biography of Cardinal Billot that what Mercier had done for philosophy, Billot's work did for speculative theology. And as well as this significant philosophical contribution, he was a pioneering thing, figure in the ecumenical movement. Um, controversially, he wanted... Um, the hierarchy to be sort of subjected to a restored see of Canterbury, uh, so alienated the English episcopus from his ideas. The Maline conversations, of course, are still going on today. Um, he spoke out forcefully against the Germans at the start of World War I, and um, this actually isolated him from gaining German and Austrian support for the dogma um, in subsequent years. Um, and obviously he's also familiar for the prayer of his secret of sanctity. I'm going to reveal to you the secret of sanctity and happiness. Every day for five minutes, control your imagination, close your eyes to all the noises of the world in order to enter into yourself. Then in the sanctuary of your baptized soul, the temple of the Holy Spirit, speak to that divine spirit, saying to him, Holy Spirit, soul of my soul, I adore thee. Enlighten, guide, strengthen and console me. Tell me what I have to do and command me to do it. I promise to be obedient to thee in all that thou shalt ask of me, and to accept all that thou permittest to happen to me, only show me what is thy will. If you do this, your life will flow along happily, serenely, and full of consolation, even in the midst of trials. Grace will be pr proportioned to the trial, giving you the strength to carry it, and you will arrive at the gate of paradise, laden with merit. This submission to the Holy Spirit is the secret of sanctity. The prayer to the Holy Spirit was for a number of years in the, uh, in the uh, Holy Ghost Chapel at Walsingham next to the Slipper Chapel and became part of the prayer lives, hopefully, for many pilgrims there over the years. And Messier then, a, a sort of multifaceted figure, and um, it's with regard to the doctrine or the dogma, the doctrine of Our Lady Mediatrix Graces, this is known for most people through the feast um, that was established uh, for a number of years on May the 31st until the Queenship of Mary was established in 1960. And in Messier's letter he, he, to Pope Benedict XVI, the 31st of May marked the transition from the month consecrated to the Blessed Virgin to the month consecrated to the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus. Um, along with this letter of April the 8th, 1920, to Pope Benedict XV, 
uh, draft of the liturgical text for the proposed feast were drawn up and, and sent by the Louvain theologian and Syriac patrologist Joseph Le Bon, and the mass was allowed and approved um, on the 12th of January 1921, uh, mass and office in honour of the Blessed Virgin Mary, mediatrix of all graces. While Mercier <coughs> made the request just for his diocese of Malines, which after Milan was then the second largest in the world with over two million Catholics, it was also available or could be used by other dioceses and religious communities. And Mercier would subsequently write to the bishops and cardinals across the world, encouraging them to adopt it, such that eventually nearly the entire world celebrated Mary as mediatrix of all graces. And this establishment of the feast led to an explosion of works under Mary of this title. Now, the, that story of Mercier's involvement is in itself very interesting, and a number of other features tie into that, not least the fact that he was initially sort of stimulated and encouraged to, to, to work for the dogma by a, a Carmelite nun, uh, who said this, this dogma is needed for, for peace in the world in, in, in the First World War. Um, the theological background will come to in a bit with, with Newman. Um, and Messier's pastoral letters were, were uh, four of them from 1915 through to his death, were, were encouraging uh, the, the feast. And then his relationship with Benedict XV, very strong, um, would, would willingly have, have himself uh, proclaimed a, a, a dogma, but wanted obviously the necessary study. So we've got the, the Belgium and the Spanish and the Roman commissions, all of whom were uh, invited to do to do the theological um, study of the topic. And the Belgians and the Spanish came back very quickly, very strongly with voluminous works all in favor. The Roman um, commission is still not available. It's still in the archives under sort of secret seal. And the question is, is who was opposed to it? The original Garigou Lagrange was, was in favor and supportive. Cardinal Billow uh, is seen to be, have been the person perhaps less sympathetic and, and one of the obstacles, although there's suggestions that uh, Maurice de la Taille uh, was also found it problematic. Um, so notably though, uh, in Mercier's first proclamation of, or encouragement of pastoral letters saying, uh, promoting the dogma, he was always talking about mediators of all graces. And when uh, the Louvain theologian Bittremeux was writing or it was, was being pressured to get his, his own personal study of the dogma or the doctrine uh, completed, he couldn't get it done before Mercier died. His initial conclusion was you cannot have a dogma of Mary Mediatrix for graces without having cons considered the position of co-redemptrix first because that uh, doctrine is included within the theme of Mary's mediation. So if you want to proclaim Mary as mediatrix of graces as a dogma, first of all, we need to address the question of Mary's co-redemptrix more thoroughly. And that uh, led to significant uh, further studies in the 30s and 40s. Um, that, that context is, I think, helpful and significant, both to looking at Newman and also to, when we come back at the end, to seeing the way that, the, um, that this this in, in doctrine which is embedded in the church's tradition uh, stands now in, um, in terms of is it possible to, is it going to become a dogma and why should it be? Um, so turning now to Newman, um, 
Our main source for his Mariology is, of course, the letter that he wrote to uh, his erstwhile friend, Edward Bouvry uh, Pusey. Um, from the Oxford movement, they were very close, but um, after his conversion, obviously, the relationship um, was challenged. And this was a response to Pusey's uh, Irenicon, which was um, a sort of uh, a polemical attempt to, to find some common ground and somewhat hostile and unjust with regard to Catholic teaching on Mary. And so Newman felt compelled to offer a response. Um, so um, before looking at this work, um, a couple of things, that, three things really are worth framing Newman's position vis-à-vis -vis Mary. Um, before his conversion, um, uh, he had an exchange of letters with Father Charles Russell, who was the, um, the rector at Maynooth. And uh, he'd got involved in this because of uh, Father Russell's was saw that some of Newman's ideas in Tract 90 were misrepresenting the Catholic faith. And Russell, in the course of corresponding with Newman, sent a number of gifts to Newman, including um, Alfonso Liguri's um, Mariological writings. And of course, Liguri is a key figure in terms of the development of Catholic understanding of Mary as mediatorial graces. So that, that influence is significant. And also a minor detail, perhaps, but shortly a couple of months before his conversion, uh, Newman began wearing the Miraculous Medal. And obviously the, the apparitions at the Rubac uh, kind of mark the, the beginning of the Marian age in, 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 in terms of... Um, uh, modern Catholic Mariology um, and represent Mary as, as, as the mediatorial graces and, and the, the, uh, one can in fact sort of deduce from those from that image that she's offered of herself there the whole sort of theology of co-redemption and Mary and mediation and then there's a very uh, interesting detail um, in terms of the broader historical scholarly context and namely the, the man who ordained Messier the the uh, uh, the redemptorist Victor Auguste Deschamps, who was Archbishop of Malines and then Cardinal, died in, 19, in 1883, um, published a study, La Nouvelle Eve uh, ou la Mère de la Vie, the New Eve or the Mother of the Living, in French in 1862, which was translated and appeared in English in 1866, the very year that Newman wrote his letter to Pusey. Now, I, I'm not sure there's any evidence that Newman was familiar with this, but it's one of those sort of parallels in the aspect history of ideas, development of theology, where both figures are doing the same thing, basically. Um, and Deschamps' work, the significance of it is that it's really the driver for the 20th century development in, 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 on the continent of, of, this, of this theology of Mary's mediatorial graces. He conceived it specifically as an introduction to Liguori's Glories of Mary, and he expressly spoke of Mary's universal mediation um, and the fundamental idea of Mary, the, of, the, the relation of Mary as the new Eve to Christ as the new Adam. Through her cooperation in bringing about salvation, Mary is the intercessory mediatress of all graces. Deschamps also composed an invocation, Hail, universal mediatress of grace, at the side of Christ, the one mediator of justice. And his work, as I said, was widely commended, recommended by Mercier. Manfred Hauck explains that Mary's mediation in the distribution of grace was understood as intercession which is very significant for the way that Mary, that Newman frames his own Mariology with uh, Mary as the sort of intercessor par excellence. So intercession and mediation are, are the sort of 
go hand in hand, then they're, they're almost equivalent in the origins of the development of this, of this doctrine within. Um, so in this sense, while if you look at the body of Newman's work, you don't find mediatrix of all grace, uh, when we understand the, the, the concept in terms of her universal mediation, that's widely present. So it's like a, there's a way into the, into the doctrine from Numa's Mariology, which, which parallels the development of, of, of this Mariology on the continent. Um, now, Numa's letter to Pusey um, is, is under understudied, underrated, under underrecognized. There's not really a critical edition at the moment. I think that's sort of almost due out in a year or two. Um, it's been described by a contemporary Slovak Mariologist as the greatest work of Mariology in the 19th century. I think that's that's interesting insight. Um, uh, and more than anything else, perhaps, it's a very, very powerful exposition of Mary as the new Eve. Um, he's, he offers basically a threefold exposition of Catholic doctrine about Mary um, in response to Pusey's objections and misrepresentations. Um, firstly, he considers the rudimentary teaching of the church, i.e. the first couple of centuries. Then he considers uh, her as mother of God, and third, he enunciates the principle of mediation, and this theme is woven throughout. Um, and so the first and foremost and most explicit point of Matt Newman's uh, position is the great rudimental teaching of antiquity about Mary is that she is the second Eve. So what does that mean? He asks and explains. He notes that Eve is termed, named by Adam as mother of the living, and this name, he says, is surely expressive of not a fact only, but of a dignity which he adds is indicative of her own general relation to the human race. This is the whole point of the, 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 the idea of her as mediatrix and co-redemptrix. It's not her and herself, but her relationship to us. And Eve listened to the evil angel. She offered the fruit to her husband and he ate of it. So she cooperated, not as an irresponsible instrument, but instinctively and personally in the sin. She brought it about. So this explanation of Newman, uh, of Eve's role in the fall, parallels a reading of uh, the redemption with Mary playing an active participating role with her son. To use maybe more modern terminology, Eve is the co-peccatrix and Mary the co-redemptrix. Eve has a share in Adam's sin and in a parallel manner Mary participated in the redemptive work of the new Adam. And taking this further for Newman as for the tradition as a whole, and this is the point for him, the Proto-Evangelium Genesis 3.15 can only be read in one way, namely as a prefiguration of Mary's role in salvation history. Um, the seed of the woman is the word incarnate and the woman whose seed or son he is is the, his mother Mary this interpretation and the parallelism it involves seems to me undeniable but at all events and this is my point he emphasises the parallelism is the doctrine of the fathers from the earliest times and this being established we are able by the position and office of Eve in our fall to determine the position and office of Mary in our restoration. Newman offers rich citations from St. Justin Martyr, Tertullian and St. Irenaeus, who represent the geographical breadth of the second century church. Critically for Newman, they show that Mary was simply a physical, they show that Mary was more than simply a physical instrument of our redemption in giving birth to Christ. 
uh, moral qualities are far more important. He writes, what is especially noticeable in these three writers is that they do not speak of the Blessed Virgin merely as the physical instrument of our Lord's taking flesh, but as an intelligent, responsible cause of it. Her faith and obedience being accessories to the incarnation and gaining it as her renew reward. As he <coughs> failed in these virtues and thereby brought on the fall of the race in Adam, so Mary, by means of the same, had a part in its restoration. As such, Newman emphasises the fact that Augustine speaks of her as more exalted by her sanctity than by her relationship to our Lord. Um, and Newman highlights this point further. All these three second century figures, Irenaeus, Tertullian, St. Justin, unanimously declare she was not a mere instrument in the incarnation, such as David or Judah may be considered. They declared that she cooperated in our salvation, not merely by the descent of the Holy Spirit upon her body, but by specific holy acts, the effects of the Holy Ghost within her soul, that as Eve forfeited privileges by sin, so Mary earned privileges by the fruits of grace, that as Eve was disobedient and unbelieving, so Mary was obedient and believing, that as Eve was a cause of ruin to all, Mary was a cause of salvation to all. That as Eve made room for Adam's fall, so Mary made room for our Lord's reparation of it. And thus, whereas the free gift was not as the offence but much greater, it follows that as Eve cooperated in effecting a great evil, Mary cooperated in effecting a much greater good. Now, we can, those words are, have a, such a kind of a beauty and a simplicity about them, we can easily just read them and move, move and sort of move on. But this principle of fittingness, um, so overlooked by modern exegesis, so central to the fathers, uh, central to, to Newman's understanding, central to our understanding of, of Mary as the new Eve. And what we see here is basically the groundwork laid almost in the second century for teachings that the magisterium of the church really only flesh out in the 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century. And in this sense, um, we can get more of an understanding why the slightly unusual words that Newman opens his account of uh, his, his exposition of the Catholic teaching on Mary. He says, writing to Pusey, that I fully grant that, grant that devotion towards the Blessed Virgin has increased among Catholics with the progress of centuries. I do not allow that the doctrine concerning her has undergone a growth, for I believe that it has been in substance one and the same from the beginning. To some extent, you say, well, it doesn't, hasn't undergone a growth. Has, is, is, there, is, this, is this not a denial of the principle of doctrinal development? Rather, I think what his what point is here is that the, the, the teaching that has been developed by the magisterium is the constant, is the same as that which was present in the Fathers. In other words, the, the, the potential for a, a dogmatic statement about Mary's mediation, her co-redemption, is to be found within the deposit of faith. It is present within scripture and tradition. Um, and so, and this is the same for not to the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption and Mary's Queenship as well. He continues his treatment of this theme of Mary as the New Eve by looking at the, the fifth, fourth and fifth century fathers and, and the, her office of universal mother is, is drawn out here, um, ascribed to her by St Epiphanius, who writes that in truth, from Mary the life itself was born in the world, that Mary might bear living things. Therefore, enigmatically, Mary is called the mother of living things. Eve became a cause of death to man and Mary a cause of life. We know St Jerome, as Newman points out, 
the Eve-Mary parallel becomes proverbial. Death by Eve, life by Mary. And St. Peter Chrysologus, who was a chief authority at Chalcedon, is cited writing that one maiden so takes, receives, entertains him as a guest within her breast, that for the very hire of her home, and as the price of her womb, she asks, she obtains peace for the earth, glory for the heavens, salvation for the lost, life for the dead, a heavenly parentage for the earthly, the union with God himself with human flesh. So Newman's conclusion from his summative selection of texts from the golden age of the fathers is, is that it's difficult to express more explicitly, though in oratorial, oratorical language, that the Blessed Virgin had a real meritorious cooperation, a share which had a higher and a price in the reversal of the fall. Now, it seems to me that this language of real meritorious cooperation is strongly suggestive of the title co-redemptrix which Mary Newman never goes beyond using, and he, he, he uses this term only once in the essay to Pusey when he says that if, if you can accept all these other titles, what's wrong with co-redemptrix and priestess? Um, suggestive that he's, he's okay with it. But it's interesting he doesn't use it when the theology behind it is so, uh, at one level at least, so, so, so strong. He remains with the term cooperate, cooperation. And he moves to prefer to stress the sanctity and the dignity that ensure from Mary's role ensue from Mary's role as the new Eve. Um, but when we consider and look 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 ahead to the fact that that, that, that the co-redemption is part of the mediation, um, we can see already being developed here or in the in the early church fathers the language that is part of the late 19th century magisterium, Leo the 13th, for example, writing in 1895, that she, who was so, most, so intimately associated with the mystery of human salvation, is just as closely associated with the distribution of the graces, which for all time will flow from the redemption. And Bittremur, as I mentioned earlier, the Louvain theologian, whom Mercier commissioned to do a theological study on the theme, concluded that Mary's co-redemption is contained within her mediation, and therefore um, this needed to be studied further before a dogma could be proclaimed. Now, with regard to her sanctity, uh, Newman sees in Mary the new Eve, and in this title, nothing other than the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Is it any violent inference, he asks, that she who was to cooperate in the redemption of the world, at least, was not less endowed with power from on high, that she who, given as a helpmate to her husband, did in the event but cooperate with him in its ruin? If Eve was raised above human nature, by that indwelling moral gift which we call grace, is it rash to say that Mary had a greater grace? The Protestant understanding of this grace as simply being able to cooperate or say yes is insufficient. Newman emphasizes that as the fathers teach, this grace is a real inward condition or a super-added quality of the soul. And if Eve had this supernatural inward gift given her from the first movement of, moment of her personal existence, is it possible to deny that Mary too had this gift from the very first moment of her personal existence? I do not know how to resist this inference. This is simply and literally the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. So we have Newman's first major points here, that New, Mary is the second Eve, the Immaculate Conception. But what's distinctive uh, is that, uh, and not normally highlighted, is the order of Newman's argument, that because she cooperates in the redemption, uh, 
therefore she is uh, immaculate. In other words, because of her role, as her co-redemptive role, she has to be immaculate. Normally the argument works the other way around, that it's because she's immaculate and therefore she's, co she's co-redemptrix. Um, there's, uh, there's obviously much more that could be, needs to be said if we were to flesh this out. There's, there's, there is within Newman uh, a very strong devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows. Uh, he doesn't focus on her role at the foot of the cross, which of course is going to be essential for a deeper, fuller understanding of Mary's work as, as, as co-redemptrix. Um, in this sense, there's a, there's, a, there's a gap between him and, and Faber. But nonetheless, if you marry those two things together, his devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows and his strong sense of Mary's cooperation in the redemption from her role as New Eve, uh, the, 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 his, his sense, the sense in which he would come to support this uh, position is, is almost undeniable. Now, the second uh, focus of his, of his, of his, uh, of his Mariology is that uh, Mary's dignity. Uh, that she surpasses all possible creations, namely because she is the mother of her creator. And it's this title as mother of God that, a new, that, that leads to all the others, even though it's, it comes after the new Eve. And this is Newman basically articulating the classic Thomist position, the divine maternity is the basis for all her other prerogatives or privileges. And also, if this title can be accepted, how can we deny her other titles effectively? Is it surprising, he writes, that on the one hand she should be immaculate in her conception and on the other she should be honoured with an assumption and exalted as a queen with the crown of twelve stars, with the rules of day and night to do her service? Men sometimes wonder that we call her mother of life, of mercy, of salvation. What are all these titles compared to that one name, mother of God? He cites a number of texts uh, in support of, of uh, from this rich period, but St. Basil of Seleucia in particular is notable. She shines out above all the martyrs as the sun above the stars, and that she mediates between God and men. And it's this final theme of Mary's intercessory power, which is his concluding part of the, the letter to Pusey. Her intercessory power is, is the result of the, the, uh, the Council of Trent's uh, sort of teaching is good and usefully, supple, useful suppliantly to invoke saints and to have recourse to their powers, prayers. Uh, and of course, the, the Blessed Virgin Mary is singularly dear to her son and singularly exalted in sanctity and glory. He treats of the wedding feast at Cana and highlights the fact that uh, Mary interceded with her son and her son did work the miracle to which her words pointed. He writes that it's impossible then for those who believe in the church, the church to be one vast body in heaven and on earth in which every holy creature of God has his place and of which prayer is the life, when once they recognise the sanctity and dignity of the Blessed Virgin, not to perceive immediately that her office above is one of perpetual intercession for the faithful militant. Here, this, this basic position of Mary as perpetually interceding, perpetually fulfilling an office of, which is one of universal mediation. In other words, intercession, mediation, the same idea here. And that her very relation, our very relation to her must be that of clients to a patron. A patron is one who gives us gifts, who, uh, on whom we're dependent, one that we might say bestows graces on us. And 
uh, he continues, in the eternal enmity which exists between the woman and the serpent, while the serpent's strength lies in being the tempter, the weapon of the second Eve, and the mother of God is prayer. This final point, the, the role of Mary in the spiritual combat between the church and the world. Newman continues that these ideas of her sanctity and dignity gradually penetrated the mind of Christendom. So did that of her intercessory power follow close upon them and with them. From the earliest times, that mediation is symbolised in those representations of her with uplifted hands, whether in plaster or in glass, still extant in Rome. Most images of Mary we see of Mary with the sun, and it seems inappropriate to some that we see Mary in modern times standing on her own in, in the apparitions and elsewhere. But the, this image of the Virgin Orans, uh, that Mary on her own, Mary, in the, 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 the model of prayer, the, the master of prayer, the intercessor par excellence, is one that Newman highlights as very ancient um, and, and in a way anticipates that return of Mary at Rubach and onwards at Fatima as, as alone and as, as, as interceding in a specific way for the church uh, in, in combat with the forces of evil. And then looking at documents, Newman uh, highlights the the, the first apparition of Our Lady, namely in AD 234, uh, which is Our Lady's appearance to St. Gregory Thermoturgus, um, who before he was called to the priesthood received a visit, um, received a vision in a creed still extant from the Blessed Virgin Mary by the hands of St. John. And what's being presented here, Newman says, is Our Lady uh, rescuing a holy soul from intellectual error. And he links this to Pusey's objection to the antiphon, all heresies thou hast destroyed alone. Highlighting that surely the truth of this is verified in this age, as in former times, especially by the doctrine concerning her on which I have been dwelling. She is the great exemplar of prayer in a generation, which emphatically denies the prayer, power of prayer in toto, which determines that fatal laws govern the universe, that there cannot be any direct communication between earth and heaven, that God cannot visit his own earth and that man cannot influence his providence. In other words, in, in, in summary, in sense of Mary's uh, position in, in Newman's uh, Mariology, is that she embodies the whole principle of mediation that's intrinsic to the order of God's creation, is intrinsic to his plan of salvation to us, and is also intrinsic to his plan of self-sanctification for us. And um, arguably this... This is lost to some extent, not just in the, in the wider world, but also within the church and the Catholic world. Uh, and one reason to reintroduce or to reaffirm the teaching with a, with a dogma, uh, supporting it. Now, to finish, I just want to maybe consider where this, where this role of Mary's mediation uh, stands within the contemporary church and where the cor corresponding... Uh, ideas of co-redemption uh, are. Um, and why Newman perhaps has a significant contribution to, to make to the debate. Obviously, uh, the Marian movement that, that, that was begun perhaps by Mercia, that, that, was, that was there at the brink of the council to be saying a dogma is going to be proclaimed, Mary is going to be made, uh, given the title of co-redemptrix, um, 
the shift that had taken place from mediatrix to co-redemptrix is, 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 is not is significant. Um, all of that disappeared. The council obviously radically affected the life of the church, in liturgy and devotion to Mary, relationship with the world, the flesh, the devil, one might add, ecumenical terms. And aspects of this whole topic of virtually forbidden uh, banned, the, the, the way you get uh, the, the title co-redemptrix co used officially in the church today is the seminary of the Society of Pius X in Buenos Aires under the title of Our Lady Co-redemptrix. Um, a, a contemporary community, the family of Mary, was once called the family of Mary Co-redemptrix. It had to be changed its, its title. Um, the Franciscans of the Immaculate were broken up for liturgical reasons perhaps, but also perhaps because of their strong emphasis on this Mariology. Um, and this is a Mariology that makes sense to, to, to traditionally minded Catholics, but is virtually foreign and, and in, intolerable perhaps to, to um, many uh, in the wider church. What the contemporary situation does in a sense demand is that Mariology has to speak into an ecumenical situation to answer Protestant objections, um, and not least because many Catholics think more and more like Protestants today, um, a Protestantizing tendency within the post-conciliar church, born of the decline in devotion to Mary, memory loss with regard to pre-conciliar magisterium, the insidious effects of biblical scholarship, uh, modern historical critical method, and disregard for patristic exegesis. Broadly speaking, the church has lost a lot of its devotion to Mary. Um, and in a sense, Newman is a perfect figure to bring, uh, to enter into the contemporary debate. His Mariology was, of course, written in the context of Protestant objections. His arguments to Pusey rooted in scripture and the early church fathers. He painstakingly shows the reasonableness of his position from a scriptural and patristic point of view. Uh, he always emphasizes that Mary is exalted for the sake of Jesus, um, understanding the Protestant position and objections from his past experience. Um, the separation, his tendency to separate doctrine from devotion answers to the skepticism of the Marian minimalists while being more generous in spirit. And his exposition of the church's doctrine retains a fullness theirs tends to lack, and moreover is open to further development. Um, his sobriety, his English reserve, suits the taste of those who are more sceptical. Um, but for those that say that Newman is opposed to um, Faber, it, his, his, the whole point of his, his letter was to defend Faber, so the, it, um, that he's supporting his contemporary English oratorians, who's, and he includes Faber's hymns in his own, own defence. Um, now, going back to the, the state of where we are now, John Paul II's pontificate obviously brought back the theme of mediation into, into the discussion uh, when Redentoris Marta uh, is entirely dedicated to this. And he then uses the term co-redemptrix on a number of occasions uh, and encouraged uh, the uh, prayer of the rosary again and renewed the, the church through this in many ways. Um, Benedict XVI, there's also a big journey that's, that's, that's gone on there. How much has his, has his theology changed over the years? 
particularly Mariology. After the council, these, 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 he writes, um, of course, the idea of Mary as co-redemptrix is gone now, as is the idea of Mary as mediatrix of all graces. The text still retains a vestige of the latter title when it says that the custom has developed in the church of addressing Mary as mediatrix, as with other titles, but this undoubtedly is very different from saying that she is mediatrix of all graces. And yet this is the same man who, when he resigned as Pope on the very day um, that, he, um, that he, he announced that, um, he invoked uh, Mary as mediatrix of all graces, not in the homily that he wrote for the, uh, to be delivered on, at, at Altotting on the feast day of Our Lady of Lourdes, uh, but in the Latin letter in which he named Zygmunt Zimowski as his envoy for the world day of sick of the sick at the Marian shrine at Altotting. He concludes this letter asking for the intercession of Beate Virginis Maria Immaculate, Mediatricis Omnium Gratiarum. So Benedict's own theology has, has moved from uh, Marian minimalism to perhaps a complete a maximalist position supporting Mary as Medix Ruthful Graces. This is sort of a parting gift on resigning the papacy. Um, some would, you, one could go further in that, um, according to the Slovak Mariologist I mentioned earlier, who's a friend of the German uh, philosopher who died a little while ago, Alma von Stockhausen, who was also a friend of Ratzinger from the 60s, had a private audience shortly before he died with the Pope and asked, can you do anything for, for the dogma, for a fifth dogma? And uh, Pope Emeritus replied, I would if I could, but it's too late now. So there's a sense in which the position of the church is, is still a certain strong openness to it. Um, and Newman uh, has is a figure who doesn't ruffle feathers, in a sense, to speak into this debate further. Um, but to, to finish, he also speaks robustly the truth, rather than a sort of false irenicism um, with regard to the established church. One of my favourite passages of him is that he speaks of the Anglican church as, as, as in no truth sense inculcating the unseen, by consequence, sights of the world, material, tangible objects, become the idols and the ruins of its children, of souls which were made for God and heaven. It is powerless to resist the world and the world's teaching. It cannot supplant error by truth. It follows where it should lead. There is but one real antagonist of the world, and that is the faith of Catholics. And this sense, ultimately, of the church as the church militant, which is so lost today, is a key feature of his Mariology. And this is precisely rooted in Mary as the new Eve, Mary's role as, co as cooperator in our salvation and her role as one of constant intercession and protection for the faithful. Anyone that understands the Proto Evangelium as pertaining to Mary sees this, uh, so her role in the spiritual struggle and the fight against the forces of evil. Um, so, What's notable is that every time Mary is proclaimed, given a title in the history of the church, the confession that she's mother of God, this, he says, is the safeguard where uh, the doctrine of, the apostle, of, of Christ is uh, sealed up from all evasion. And the test whereby we detect all the pretenses of those bad spirits of Antichrist which have gone out into the world.
mother of God declares that he is, is um, God and it implies that he is man. Uh, just when, uh, and, and this idea of um, Marian dogma uh, to be proclaimed when there is great evil within the church um, is striking in the sense of when we put it in the context of the church, let's say, at the council when it decided not to make a dog, proclaim a dogma. Um, Newman's words, based on history, speak very strongly into the contemporary order. Council fathers determined not to make a dogmatic statement about Mary uh, and exclude certain terms entirely, like co-redemptrix, which they acknowledged to be true in themselves. And what followed was a decade without Mary, um, but also, clearly, those bad spirits of Antichrist, which, uh, which had gone out into the world that Newman talks about in the context of the 5th century, um, that had come into the church in the 1960s and 70s, noted by Paul VI himself. If we're to follow Newman's understanding, the re immediate remedy for these, the bad spirits and the false prophets, which today have grown, this is him writing about the fifth century, have grown stronger and bolder and found their way into the Catholic body itself, is to turn to Mary and to honour her with a dogmatic title encapsulating her role of mediation for us and for the church. And he continues with this theme in the 16th century, reflecting on the significance of the Protestant rejection of Mary. On the other hand, when they come, came up again from the realms of darkness, these spirits of Antichrist, and plotted the utter overthrow of the Christian faith in the 16th century, then they could find no more certain expedient for their hateful purpose than that of reviling and blaspheming the prerogatives of Mary. For they knew full well that if they could once get the world to dishonour the mother, the dishonour of the son would follow close. The church and Satan agreed together that in, in this, that son and mother went together. Need one ask for a more explicit recognition of the unity of the mother and the son in the life of the church? Newman continues outlining the effects, which are once more clearly discernible in our era, as well as that about which Newman specifically writes. The experience of three centuries has confirmed their testimony. For, Catholic, for Catholics who have honoured the mother still worship the son, while Protestants, who now have ceased to confess the son, began then by scoffing at the mother. Devotion to Mary is thus directly linked to the right worship of God in Christ for Newman. And following this hard-hitting passage, he explains precisely this key point. You see then, my brethren, in this particular, the harmonious, harmonious consistency of the revealed system. It's the bearing of one doctrine upon another. Mary is exalted for the sake of Jesus. It's fitting that she, as a creature, though the first of creatures, should have an office of ministration. And he ends this, this is, this is uh, on the fitness of the glories of Mary. He ends this, uh, uh, this, this, this reflection with a, um, with, a, with a consideration of this final uh, prerogative of hers, uh, the, the final glory, her intercessory power. Uh, if God heareth not sinners, but if a man be a worshipper of him and do his will, him he heareth. If meek Moses, by lifting up his hands, turned the battle in favour of Israel against Amalek, why should we wonder at hearing that Mary, the only spotless child of Adam's seed, has a transcendent influence with the God of grace? 
and if the Gentiles of Jerusalem sought Philip because he was an apostle when they desired access to Jesus, and Philip spoke to Andrew, are still more closely in our Lord's confidence, and then both came to him, is it strange that the mother should have power with the son, distinct in kind from that of the purest angel and the most triumphant saint? If we have faith to admit the incarnation itself, we must admit it in its fullness. Why then should we start at the gracious appointment which arise out of it, or are necessary to it, or are included in it? If the Creator comes on earth in the form of a servant and a creature, why may not his mother, on the other hand, rise to be a queen of heaven, clothed with the sun, and have the moon under her feet? And he concludes with a, with a, with a hymn to Mary, Mother of Grace. So we don't find the title there, but we find effectively the, the fullness or the, the, the seeds of the, the theology which develops in the 20th century. Um, I will leave it there for, for questions. Um, this podcast was brought to you by the Latin Mass Society. We hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your rating and podcast on the platform you are using. If you would like to find out more, do visit our website and consider joining us or giving us a donation.